Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. I want you to think about the most significant event in your life. And you can't count your birth, okay, because you were really paying attention at that point. The most significant event. You know, it could be the day you got married, maybe. Could be your first child, or maybe your second child, if your first child didn't work out so well, you know, you did hope in the second child. I think that's why people have more than one child, right? Because we got to do better than that, right? And I was number four, so you can tell my three brothers before me just weren't very, you know. Maybe it's the day you graduated college. You got your education, something you'd longed for, and and you've, you've achieved something that you maybe thought was almost out of your reach. <laughs> maybe it was the day you paid off the student loan debt of college, right? That that was the greatest event in your life. You know, today as we look here in the, the epistle, which is another word for letter from the apostle Paul, that he writes to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was... The city of Corinth was a very um, sinful place. It would be kind of like the Las Vegas of, of the United States, so to speak, of the, of the New Testament, right? It was just a place of a lot of um, impurity, a lot of sexual sin, a lot of uh, pagan rituals, all sorts of things. And when Paul kind of arrives there initially in his first missionary journey, he is like the only Christian in the entire place. Can you imagine that for a second? Having the gospel been given to you by God, and he sends you to a place like Las Vegas, and no one there knows anything about Jesus, but he has sent you to go there to share the gospel. And look what God has done through that sending. Today we are sitting here because Paul and others have went and shared this incredible, amazing truth. And so what really Paul is going to do here in chapter 15 of, of 1 Corinthians is he's just going to kind of share with the church there, the, the body of believers there in Corinth, the significance of the resurrection. And, and he's going to look at three things, kind of he's going to break it down in kind of three things, and we'll talk about those in a minute, but, but how significant this is. And so why we think that the most significant event in our life maybe is having a child or getting married or whatever it may be, or, or maybe it's some technology. I mean, think about the combustion engine. Where would we be today without that? Or the computer or the cell phone. Now, some of those things have great pluses, but then some of them also have great drawbacks. They're, they're also temptations to us and things that can get us into trouble. The great thing about the resurrection, which I will tell you is I think is the, the one of the most significant events in history. In fact, that really leads me to our big idea this morning. If you're new with us, the big idea is kind of the, the focus of today's message. It's kind of the thing that we're going to drive at. The big idea is that the resurrection of Jesus is the most significant event in human history. Beyond creation, after people were created, the most significant event clearly beyond all other things is the resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't bringing Lazarus back from the dead. It wasn't healing the sick. It wasn't splitting the Red Sea. It wasn't delivering the, Israel, uh, you know, the Hebrews out of Egypt. None of those things even compare to the resurrection of Christ. And so that's really what Paul is going to be driving at here in his letter. And it's really why he writes this letter. So the question that, that, that really begs to be asked this morning, of all of us, myself included, is do we believe that Jesus really was resurrected from the dead? Do we truly believe that? Now at some level you would say, well, we're here, aren't we? <laughs> like, 
we're here for, for Resurrection Sunday. Of course we believe that. And, and I would say, well, I don't know that that's true. I think some people come for all sorts of reasons, and you may be coming to explore, and, and I think that's wonderful. I'm thankful for that. You may be coming because your, your mother or your, your parents or your spouse decided that you were coming, and so you're here, and, and, and you so graciously agreed to that, and, and I'm thankful for that. But it really begs the question, did this really happen some 2,000 years ago? Because, see, if it really did, there's serious consequences, good and bad, for that event. There's things that hinge on that. And the most important thing that hinges on that is is our spiritual eternity, is where will we spend forever? Now, I just want to remind you that, like I said, the tomb given was empty. But I I want to explain the resurrection just a little bit, and, and I won't go too much into this. But this wasn't just coming back from the dead. We, we say that a lot. Well, Jesus came back from the dead. Well, Lazarus came back from the dead. But, you know, Lazarus died again. And so there's a difference between coming back alive again in the physical body and Jesus actually being resurrected from the dead unto eternal life. There, there's a big difference there. And, and Where do we see that? And Paul actually later here in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, he says this. He says, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one of a kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. Notice how he puts the emphasis on the heavenly body. Then we skip down to verse 42, and it says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. So what does that mean? It means that what is sown into the ground, when we sow a seed, it perishes. So I'm always, I'm, I'm easily um, amazed at, at creation, and, and we have a, a garden, and, and so when we plant a seed, what's amazing, I, a corn is the one that I really just get amazed at. This little tiny kernel, we put it in some dirt, I mean like dirt, and we cover it up. In a few weeks, it pops up. In a few months, it's taller than me, and it has yielded maybe three ears of corn. But what has been sowed is perished. It's, the seed is gone. And really what, what he says is that when we die, we're sowing our seed. We're dying. We go into the grave and when we perish. But what God raises, and this is what it means to have eternal life. When God raises Christ, he's imperishable now. He will no longer die. Lazarus was going to raise and he was going to perish again. But Jesus here, when he is raised, he's now imperishable. Okay, And that's really what the Apostle Paul is talking about. So remember... When we talk about the resurrection, Jesus has been resurrected unto eternal life, not just to live in a mortal body again. So let's jump into our text this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to start with just 1 and 2. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So first I want to just identify what the gospel is, right? He preaches something, and he calls it the gospel. It means good news. Now, it doesn't necessarily always have to mean what we talk about Jesus. It's just good news in general. But here, the gospel takes on this idea that the good news is that we are sinful people, that every one of us has sin in our life. Every one of us is rebelled against a holy God, every one of us. Even, even those of us that do our very best and live morally, we have sinned against God. 
And the good news is that God has made a way for us to be forgiven. Because if God is truly holy, and we believe he is, and he's just, we deserve a penalty. And that penalty, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, God said, if you do this, if you sin, basically, you will die. You will die physically, and you will be separated from me for eternity. In a place called hell, was what the Bible would say. And so the good news is that God does something so loving, so gracious, that he makes available for us to be forgiven of a lifetime of sin. That is absolutely amazing to me, that he would do such a thing. Friday night I read a scripture from Romans that says, you know, that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. He he didn't wait for us to be good because we can't be good. He did something that we cannot do. He sent his son to be good for us and ultimately then die in our place. So that is the gospel, the good news that God sent his son into the world to take our sin. But then in this text, what does he say? Now, I would remind you, brothers. Now, he's speaking to the church here. So why do they need to be reminded? Because we always need to be reminded of that good news. Because we will drift. Because 24 hours a day, the world system is constantly telling us to come over to that side, to to leave the gospel, to remove ourselves, to live how we want to live. It appeals to our, our flesh, to our desires, to our lust. It's constantly appealing to us. And you feel the pull. I know you do. Because I feel the pull. Readily, I feel the pull of, of moving. And he says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. Now, here it is, that I preached to you. What, what, what's he saying here? The gospel, and I've shared this a few weeks ago with our congregation, the gospel must be preached. The good news must be shared. That's really what he's saying here. It's somebody has to, to let you know, how did you first hear about the good news? Somebody had to tell you that. Or you read it. It has to be shared. And what Paul is saying is is that it had to be shared. I had to preach it to you. And so he's just making that clear to them. It says, look, I came and I preached to you, you, which you received. They received it. They, they, They heard it. They received it. You could say, well, they believed it at some level. Absolutely, they believed it. Some obviously fully held on to it because what does it go on there to say? It says, in which you stand. This idea in which you stand, it means you, you kind of take your stand. You believe it, and you're going to stand against the other views, the other world views that are going to say, no, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. No, you've taken your stand. You have stood and said, no, this is true. And no matter what comes, no matter how much flow is against me, how much I'm swimming upstream, I'm going to take my stand here in the gospel. I've received it, and I believe it, and I'm going to stand it goes on there and it says, and by which you are being saved. It's, it's this thing that is saving us. The gospel challenges uh, all the things that we, we think in our world and we say because it, we're such a merit-based world, we think we have to do something to be good so that we can be forgiven, to be saved. And, and the gospel goes completely against that and says, no, you cannot do anything to be good. Only what God is, is doing is worthy of that. And if you will just receive that, you will be forgiven. And why is that? The primary reason is that is that because God is worthy of all the credit. We call that glory. We call that praise. God is worthy of all. He's the creator of all things. He's made all things. He sustains all things. He's given you life. He is worthy. And so if you could do something to earn your salvation, to earn your place, so to speak, in heaven, who would get the glory for that? You would. And God is not going to share his glory, especially with sinful people. And so he gets the glory. And it goes on there and it says, 
which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Here again, he's talking about holding fast to it. This idea of that we have to hold fast. The best place that this, I think, can be um, exhibited is if you're familiar with the parable of the sower. The sower is sowing seed in the soil, and, and I won't get into all of this, but, but some of the seed um, is taken in quickly. It's received. Here in the text, it says it's received. The word of God is the, the soil, is the, is the soil is our heart, and the word of God is the seed. And we believe it. It's the gospel. It's the good news. And some people believe it. They receive it. But when the troubles of the world and, and all of the temptations of the world kind of come up around it, it says it chokes it out. And that's why Paul here is saying you have to hold on to it. You, you have to stand firm. You have to hold on to it. Because sometimes as quickly as it's received, the world comes along and plucks it away. And maybe for some of you this morning, you're going to receive this good news. You're going to walk out of here and you're going to say, man, that is the best news I've ever heard. And I will tell you that when you walk out those doors, the enemy is going to want to remove that from you. It's going to want to choke that thing out. And that's why it's so important to find a good local church, to be in fellowship and community, to be in the word, to be learning and being taught. All right. So that's where we're at. Paul kind of just introduction here. So now Paul's going to share three kind of specific things, three kind of categories here. The first thing he's going to share is that there's evidence of Jesus' resurrection. And then he's going to talk about the consequences if Jesus is not resurrected. If that didn't happen, Paul is going to spend a lot of time talking about what that is. And then finally, he's going to give us two major results of Jesus' resurrection, things that, that come out of it, the outcome of that. So first I want to look at these types of evidence for the resurrection. We're going to pick it up in... 15 verses 3 and 4. It's for, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, first of all, I don't want to spend much time on this. What does Paul say? As of first importance. So everything in Paul's life, all his, his training, all he was, a, he was a Pharisee, his whole life, what is the most important thing that Paul says is the gospel. It is the most significant event in all of human history. Paul is saying this is the, of first importance. There's nothing more important that I could tell you this morning. I, I could give you the cure of cancer if I had it, but it would not be as important as the gospel. I could tell you that how to, maybe there was an answer to how to solve world hunger or to stop the war in Ukraine. It would not be as important as me sharing the gospel with you this morning. That's really what Paul is saying. That's the weight of what he is saying. And he says, I also received this idea that Paul is saying, look, I didn't make this up. I received this myself. We find it in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Here's what Paul says as he's writing to the church there in Galatia. It's for I would have you know, brothers, he's writing to the church, that the gospel that I, was, that I preached was preached by me is not man's gospel. In other words, Paul's saying, I didn't make this up. This is something that man made up. For he did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ changed him from the inside out. We call that being born again in the, in the church. This idea that something supernatural happens to us and, and we are given a new heart. Because our heart is wicked, ultimately. 
even, even those that are, so that are good, there's just these tendencies in our heart that, that we don't want God ultimately. We want what we want. We want to deny him. We want to, to live our own life. We want to be our own authority. We don't want God to have authority over us. And so something has to change us from the inside out. God has to work in our heart to do that. And that's really what Paul is saying. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so here we see that, so it goes on there, it says, in accordance with the scriptures. This idea here, it's in accordance with the scriptures. So here's the first piece of the evidence, right? We're going to see that, is that there's scriptural evidence of the resurrection. There's scriptural evidence. What I mean by that is that in the Old Testament, there's all these um, 39 books of the Old Testament that have been put together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Psalms, all the prophets, Isaiah, Many of you have heard of all of those. There's evidence that it has been written about that Jesus has been foretold and been, and had been prophesied in the Old Testament. And we could go through so many places that it's, it's there. I can't go through all of those with you this morning, obviously. That would take weeks. I just want to share a couple with you. Brian referenced this a few weeks ago. In Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8, he references Psalm 22. This is when Jesus is on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We believe that he's really quoting Psalm 22, and if you would read that, it's a very powerful psalm, and that's really what he's reminding them of. He's, he's sharing that I am the Messiah. If you will just go back and look at Psalm 22, I fulfilled the Old Testament. And so here in 7 and 8 of Psalm 22, it says this. this is, now think about Jesus and, and what he's going through here on the cross. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Wow, that, we might as well be reading the New Testament there. We might as well be reading the account of the crucifixion, because that's exactly what the gospel writers say. And so here we see, and, and there's many places. And I, If you have your Bible with you right now, though, I want you to turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. We are not going to read this whole chapter. I would encourage you to do that. But if you're not familiar, this is an Old Testament uh, prophet. Um, it's an incredible uh, piece of scripture. Now, Isaiah is a, um, called by God as a prophet. He is, uh, this is about 700, 750 years before the birth of Christ. So many, many years before Jesus comes into existence. Right? And, and the prophet writes, and clearly we're going to see that this writing is about Jesus. It's, it's, it predicts him. It, it says who he is in some incredible ways. And I'm going to, as, as Nathan, or the, not Nathan, but as Lester said, I'm going to jump around just a little bit. But we're just going to look at a few verses here. I'm going to tell you where we're at. Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 5. Now, I want you to think about who Jesus is and, and what happened to him and, and how he was killed and, and mocked and ridiculed and beaten and why he died for our sin as we read through this. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Jump down to verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
Jump down to verse 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. 700 years before Jesus comes. Isaiah writes of what Jesus is going to do for us. He is going to be beaten. He's going to be rejected by men. He's going to be pierced for our sin. He's going to take upon our guilt and our shame. And if those who come to know him will be forgiven, his offspring will be made righteous, not because of what they've done, but because who he is and what he has done. So there we see this evidence, this scriptural evidence, and we could go lots of other places. And so now I want to specifically look at his resurrection. So that was really his death, right? That was, those, those were things that were prophesying his death. Now think about his resurrection for a minute, and I'm not going to read these, but um, if you're familiar with um, Genesis chapter 22, it's, it's when Abraham has Isaac, and, and God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And they spend three days on the mountain, and then Isaac is going to be killed because God has asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. It says his only son, his only legitimate son. And just before Abraham kills him, after three days of being on the mountain, God provides a ram. And Isaac is spared. He has life. This picture here is of Jesus. Three days he's in the tomb, and he comes back to life. It's a picture of it. We see Jonah and the fish, right? says Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish. Doesn't die. He's brought out. Jesus is brought out of the tomb. He survives and he lives. We see many other places in this, of this happening in the Old Testament. But then we can move to the New Testament. You say, well, was that really scripture? Well, these, all of these letters were accepted as scripture even in that time. These were things that the apostles in the early church were reading to each other. They, they looked at these letters as scripture. And so where do we see this? We see Jesus actually sharing about his resurrection with them. And what's going to happen? We see this in the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. And he, said, he, began, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So here Jesus is predicting what's going to happen to him. I mean, and this isn't just saying some some simple thing that could possibly happen. No, he's saying, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to spend three days in a grave, and I'm going to come back to life. Now, that is a heck of a prediction. We see it again in the Gospel of Luke. And I will tell you, these things are recorded in all four Gospels. This is how significant this is. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 31 through 33, it says, And taking the twelve, so here Jesus has the twelve with him, his twelve apostles, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is his time when he's getting ready to go and he's ultimately going to be crucified. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now we're talking about Psalm 22. We're talking about all the things in the Old Testament. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, which would be the Romans. And he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him or beating him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. Once again, Jesus is sharing the truth about what's going to happen to him. 
Let's pick it up in 1 Corinthians now, back in our text. Chapter 15, verses 5 through 8. And that he appeared to Cephas. Now, Cephas was Peter. His name changed later, but it's Peter. Then to the twelve. So now Jesus is resurrected, is what Paul is saying. He's been resurrected. He's appeared to me, right? He's appeared to Stephen, or excuse me, to Peter. And then to the twelve, to the twelve disciples, the apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Now, that is something that I really hope that you, you really let settle in for a second. This apologetics is, is basically that we can prove the resurrection, that, that in a court of law, if we were to go back and try and see if this really happened, if we could prove the resurrection, clearly there is more eyewitness testimony and more evidence of Jesus' resurrection than probably any historical event in all of history. I just want you to think about that for a second. For those of you who deny that, that Jesus is the Messiah, I respect you this morning, but you're, I just want you to understand the weight of the evidence here. And I just ask that you weigh it. Study for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Dig into history. Dig into the scripture. Dig into the eyewitness testimony. And notice what he says here. More than 500 brothers at one time. Jesus appeared to not just a few people. This was many people most of whom are still alive. And why is that significant? Because what, what Paul is really saying, he says, look, go ask somebody. You, you don't take my word for it. Go ask somebody. He's just writing to the church here and he says, go ask anybody that was there. They'll tell you that he rose from the dead. They'll tell you that they saw him. 500 people. Then he goes, though some have fallen asleep, some have died, is what he's referencing there. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, this, what Paul says here is who he's untimely born. He's saying, I wasn't born, and I, I wasn't in a place where I could be one of the apostles. Christ appeared to me later. It was untimely. I wish I would have been born then, but I was born, and I wasn't part of that group. And, and so Christ came and, and revealed himself to me later. And so what do we see here? Not only do we see that there's scriptural evidence, but we see eyewitness testimony evidence. Eyewitness testimony evidence. Hundreds of people, specific people, not nameless people, James, Peter, the apostles, eyewitness testimony. In fact, we, while he doesn't reference these, you know other people that could have eyewitness testimony that, that we can really kind of see in the scripture is, is the Roman guards. They were there. In fact, they went to the, the Jewish establishment, or actually they went to the Roman authority, and they said, look, this is what happened. And, and the Jewish said, don't tell anybody that. Lie. Don't tell them the truth. They witnessed it as well, and they could testify, but we'd have to probably subpoena them to do that, right? So there's eyewitness testimony. All right, now Paul kind of turns a little bit, and he wants to talk about six consequences um, if Jesus was not resurrected. And we're going to go through these pretty quickly. He spends a lot of time here. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some say that there is no resurrection from the, of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. What Paul is really just saying is at that time, there were some people, that the Sadducees and other people, that just questioned whether Jesus really was raised from the dead. And one of the reasons is, is because in that Greek time and, and that belief system, they believed that anything that was physical was inherently evil. It was spiritually was good, but physical things were bad. So you wouldn't be raised from the dead because they would look at that and say, well, that's a physical being. But like I said earlier, 
That body was different. It was not, it was physical, but it was also redeemed. It was also a glorified body, which we don't have time to go in now, but it was different. So what he's just saying is, look, if you're saying, if we're proclaiming, and, and you, we testify that Jesus has really been raised from the dead, but then you say that there is no resurrection, then that means Christ isn't raised. And he's just posing the argument here. It's kind of how he starts it out. And then he picks it up in verses 14 and 15. And he just continues. Here are the consequences. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, our sharing, our telling, is in vain. And your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God and then he raised Christ, whom he, did, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So Paul is just saying, look, we've done this and if Jesus isn't raised, there are huge consequences to this, right? What are the consequences? If Christ has not been raised, your preaching is in vain. So what do we say here? Preaching would be pointless. So that means what I'm doing right now would absolutely be pointless. What Paul did on the missionary journeys to what we'd say is modern-day Turkey and all the, the missionary journeys that he took and all the people and all the beatings that he took to be able to get the gospel out would be pointless. That's, Paul's just trying to get them the weight of this. Saying, look, everything that we're doing, all the preaching, all the going, would be pointless if Christ had not been raised from the dead. I tell people all the time, you know, if Jesus dies for your sins, takes the penalty for your sins, and there's nothing after that, then there's really no hope in that, is there? I mean, we always talk about, well, he died for my sins. But without the resurrection, it's pointless. If, if Jesus doesn't defeat death and raise from the dead into a glorified body and promise us to have resurrection as well if we are in Christ, then him dying for our sins is meaningless. And so Paul just says preaching would be pointless. What else does he say there? He says, then your faith is in vain. This idea that, that believing, you, your, your faith in believing would be useless. It would be absolutely useless. He's just telling them, look, don't, why believe? It's useless. If he's not been raised, there's no point. Because everything hinges on this event. Not on his, just his death, not on his sinless life, not on him being born and celebrating at Christmas, the, the baby in the manger. All of that is wonderful and needs to happen. But without the resurrection, none of it matters. And then he goes on and he basically says, and if we are found to be, and we would even be found to be misrepresenting God, what does that mean? The apostles would be liars. That's really what he's saying. He says, look, if, if this didn't really happen, then we're all liars. Every one of us that's sharing this truth, that we saw him, that we spoke to him, that we ate with him, that we touched his side, we put our fingers in his hands and his nail holes, we'd be lying to you. And so really what he's saying is, look, are we all liars? Is every one of us, is all the 500 people that would testify to this, are we all lying to you? Because if he is not raised, we would be liars. He continues to drive this point home. It's so significant in verses 16 and 19. It says, for if the dead are not raised, here he goes again, even, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That is a huge point. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are all of people to be most pitied. So one again, he's going to, three more things he's going to say. If Christ is not raised, here's the consequences of that. The first one is, the gospel would be powerless, right? He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith, here it's this idea of a, of a, of a belief system. In other words, uh, the gospel, what we believe to be true, that Jesus died for our sins and raised for our forgiveness. If that's not true, your faith 
the gospel, the message of that would be powerless. The, the good news would not be good, basically, because he did not raise. He did not defeat death, ultimately. And then what's he, he goes on there and says, and you're still in your sins. So while he's died for your sins, there's, there's been no victory yet. He's kind of paid the debt, but he has no receipt. He has no way to prove what he's done. He's no proof to prove it that he's, been, he's conquered death. We don't, we don't have any of that. And so what do we see here? What Paul is really saying is we would still be condemned in our sin. We'd still be there. He was a great guy. He lived a righteous life. He dies for us, but he's still dead. You think about all the, the major um, religious leaders, Muhammad and Buddha and Gandhi and, you know, you could go on and on. Um, Joseph Smith, if you want to count, you know, like Mormonism and, and all of those things. They're all dead. Right? They, they have no way to validate what they've said. They, they have no way to, to say, I can show you that this is true. I have power over death. They don't. Only Jesus has that. And the evidence is overwhelming. But the consequences are also overwhelming if we, if it did not happen. And then he kind of says there at the close of that, he says, and those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, those who have believed but then died, they, they received it, they held on to the gospel, the good news, but then they passed away, they died. He's basically saying, if that's true and Jesus hasn't been resurrected, there would be no hope for the dead in Christ. They're dead. They're not coming back. They're not going to be risen from the dead. There's going to be no resurrection for them because Christ has not been raised. Six powerful consequences if Jesus was not resurrected. All right, last section. We're going to look at two major results of the resurrection. Finally, some good news. And I love how Paul changes gears here in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's just reminding them he has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What's that mean? He says he's the first one to raise in a glorified body. He's a first fruit. We talked a few weeks ago here in Hebrews that he is preeminent. He's before all things. He's supreme in all things. He is the first raised from the dead. Right? Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 6, verse 9. It says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Unlike Lazarus. Unlike everybody that's that Jesus ever raised, they died again, but Jesus will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Right? What a, a great result of the resurrection for him. We continue in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, For by a man came death, and by, which would be Adam. Right? And we're all sin because the seed of Adam. We all have it. We all sin. We all have sin in our heart. We all reject God, just like Adam and Eve. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Jesus. He's called the second Adam. One man came and brought death. Jesus had to be a man to set that record straight, to fix the problem of sin. He had to be a perfect representation of us, which is why he is fully man but yet fully God. It says, for in Adam all die. Now notice all here. All die. Romans 3 says, no one is good, no, not one. All have turned away. All have died in sin. For in Adam all die. Also, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
Now, some people would read that and say that's universalism. Everybody dies in Adam, and everybody's made alive in Christ. That's not what Paul's saying here. That's not the context of the text. He's saying all those who are in Christ will be made alive. Christ is the way to be made alive. We know John 14, 6. We've talked about that many times. John writes in the Gospel of John, and Jesus tells him, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a way to life. There's a way to eternal life with God, but it's only through Christ. And so when it says here, so also in Christ, obviously if you're in Christ, all shall be made alive. In other words, anybody that's in Christ will be made alive. And so if you have a personal relationship with Christ this morning, you'll be made alive. You'll be resurrected. That's That's what Paul is saying. But it's for those that are in Christ. Paul puts it a little clearer maybe in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all have sinned. Death came to all people. There's no escaping it without the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 23 of our text this morning. But each to his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So now it's getting a little clear. He's made it a little bit more clear. He says, He's the first fruit. He's the first one to rise from the dead. Then, what does it say? Then at his coming, at his second coming, those who belong to Christ, those that have believed, those that have held the faith, those that have held firm and stood, as we looked at in verse 1 and 2. But each to his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Those is an order of things. He is first, he's preeminent, he's the first, he dies, he's raised from the dead. And then what? For those of us that are in Christ, we too can be raised from the dead. Paul says it this way though in Romans chapter 4, verse 24 and 25. But also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness... He credits us righteousness. We we don't earn it. We don't do something to get it. He credits it to us. Because of his son, if we believe, he credits us. Another way for that is to say he justifies us. He makes us just. Not because we've done something to earn it. It's because we've believed. We've trusted in the work of Christ. And so because of that, God gives us a justification or righteousness that we do not have. But also for us, to whom God... God is doing this, will credit righteousness. But for who? For us who believe in him. Right? For us who believe in him. There's a caveat, and don't miss that this morning. I want all of you to to understand the truth of the gospel, that we are saved and made right with God and forgiven when we accept the work of Christ and we believe in the death and resurrection. But, but this idea of believing is not a head knowledge. I talked to someone recently, and they can, they can say the words, but, but I don't know that they really have been transformed from the inside out. They don't, they don't have a new heart. They're just reciting words. We know in Scripture that even the demons believe, but yet they are not saved. So knowledge is not enough. You may be knowledgeable about the Bible, but do you love Jesus? Do, do you... Do you want what he wants? I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm far from perfect. But do I, do I love the Lord? Do I, do I want to see people transformed by him? Do, do I want to share the gospel with people? Do, do I love the idea that he forgives me and that I want to be able to, to be a witness for him? But for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins. 
and was raised to life for our justification, this idea that we are justified. All right, so what's the next result here? Salvation for those who love Jesus and hold to the gospel. That's really the big celebration here on Resurrection Sunday, is that God has made it possible for salvation, for us to be saved. We use this word saved because there's a judgment from God that's just, Sometimes it says the wrath of God because God in his love gave his one and only son that whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. That's what John says in the gospel. And so salvation for those who love Jesus and hold on to the gospel. I would just encourage you today that that is where truth is found. And for those of us that believe, we need to hold tight to the gospel and not waver from it. Paul says finish the race. Hold tight. Last verse, verse 24. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Jesus here conquers not only sin, he conquers every authority, every ruler, every king, every prince, every dictator, every nation. He is supreme ruler over. And so what is the the final thing that we see as the result of the resurrection? Jesus takes his rightful place as king. He takes his rightful place as king. I'll leave you with a, I'm going to ask you a question here in a minute. I want to read a passage from Revelation, thinking about taking his rightful place as king, maybe what this looks like a little bit. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. Here the, the gospel writer John writes this. It says, Then I looked and heard a voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb, which would be Jesus, who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and under the sea, that all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. I talked a few weeks ago in Philippians chapter 2. It basically says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He is worthy. And we will bow and we will confess. The question isn't whether that will happen. That's a given. The question is, will you be found faithful in Christ? Will you be found believing, loving the Savior? If you are, you will receive righteousness and you will be justified and you will spend eternity in heaven. If you are not, you will still bow and you will still confess, but you will be eternally separated from God forever. The gospel is that clear. This morning, I want to make it as clear as I possibly can. God, in his amazing love, has provided the opportunity for you to be forgiven of all your sin. So I'll leave you with two questions. Do you believe that Jesus was really resurrected 2,000 years ago? That's really a question for you. Do you really believe that? Because if you really believe that, that's going to require some decision-making on your part. The second question I want to leave you with. Have you received the gospel, and are you holding on to it? 
if you, if you know, you believe that he was resurrected, but if you receive the good news, you, you know it intellectually, but have you received it? Have you let it transform your heart? Have you yielded to its truths? Do you want what he wants? Do you care about him? Do you love his, his people, his church? The, and we are imperfect. So ask any member of our congregation that knows me. Do you know that I have struggles in my life? But do you love the Lord? That's the question for us this morning. Well, do you believe it and do you receive it? Do you take it in? And just like in the parable of the sower, do you allow your heart to be fertile? Do you allow it to spring up? Do you, do you hold on to it? Do you keep the weeds and, and all the, the struggles of life away from it? Do you hold fast to it? And if you do, God promises us forgiveness in eternity. So this morning, I would ask that you weigh the significance of the resurrection of Jesus because it has eternal consequences. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. I trust that you were glorified in the teaching and the preaching of your word. And Father, that it was received this morning, Father. I pray that it was received by hearts and minds. But Father, not just that it was received, but it is acted upon. It is transformative in someone's life this morning that you will make them a new creation in Christ Jesus. You will give them a heart of flesh and remove the heart of stone. Father, that is your work. And we trust that the preaching of the word brings change. It has the power to bring life. And so, Lord, I pray that even now you are making new creations here in our congregation. And for those of us that, that are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we have taken a stand and believe in the gospel, Father, may you help us to hold fast to that truth, to finish the race well, to continue to be sanctified by you, to be changed by you, and grow into the full image of your Son. And Father, we do all of this today for your glory. I pray that you are glorified in all that we've done, the songs that we've sing, the fellowship that we had, and the preaching of your word. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.